listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan. David Scott is still uh, on assignment uh, somewhere in, I think, the Bavarian Alps, uh, enjoying some uh, cured meat and no doubt a beer or two. Um, But for a chat this week, I'm joined by Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Shane, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Paul. It has been a huge week. Uh, It seems that... uh, these days, um, the last time you were on the show, Shane, uh, we were talking about uh, the explosion in Italian bond deals. Um, so we're getting these little sort of bits of twitchiness um, in, in global markets from time to time now, aren't we? We certainly are. And it's very distracting for us as investors, for anyone trying to make sense of all this stuff. And you, you go from one thing to another wondering, is that the thing that's going to blow things up again and give us another major bear market. Um, yes, Italy recently, and that one hasn't gone away yet. They've still got the issue of trying to negotiate their budget as we come into September, so that one could still blow up again. And more recently, of course, we've had Turkey. So Yeah, and interestingly, those um, Italian um, bond deals are back up to that level to um, the, just this week. They started pushing higher again to that level where mm. they were when they really um, sh- shot higher um, a couple of months back. Yeah, two things there. I think the Turkish thing worries uh, Europe a little bit to the extent that some European banks, including some Italian ones, have an exposure to Turkey. So that's issue number one. Issue number two, of course, is that horrible bridge disaster in uh, in Genoa in Italy. Horrible, horrible, horrible event. But of course, um, the Interior Minister uh, Salvini, I think, came out and said, well, you know, this is part of the problem with fiscal austerity. We can't maintain the bridges. I kind of look at it and think, well, that bridge looks like it wasn't built too well if it fell down like that. Um, so I think there's probably a bit more involved, but it does provide us a reminder. And I think that's why the, why the market took us, that that budget issue was still hanging out there. And therefore, there is still that risk around Italian bonds in particular. And it's a complicated one for investors to get their mind around, but it's really quite simple. I think in, investors are worried that some part of Europe, some part of the Eurozone will break off, redenominate everything in some depreciated currency, and rather getting paid back one euro for one euro, whatever it should be, and on your bonds you get paid a, back, fraction. a fraction of that, some fraction which they don't know. That's why they're demanding a higher risk premium to invest in Italian bonds. So we're going to go through, um, uh, we're going to talk about Turkey. Uh, we've got a pretty packed agenda. We'll see what, how much we can get through. Uh, we'll try and talk about, we'll definitely talk about Turkey, the risk of contagion. We're going to talk about this uh, rampaging US dollar, uh, what that means um, and the effect that's having on all sorts of assets. Um, we'll look at some of the stresses that there have been in financial markets this week. Um, if we can, we'll look quickly at Australia. Not much has changed, uh, still more of the same. Um, but then also Shane uh, had a great nod out and he does these occasionally a great note on uh, on the keys to successful investing. And uh, I think in these uh, sort of fairly chaotic times, uh, it's always good to go back and look at some, some of those basic principles. Now, speaking of basic principles, um, there was a note that I saw uh, from a UBS analyst called uh, Tillman Kolb, uh, and it was about this Turkey uh, problem. And he said that, you know, the crisis looks likely to deepen at this point. So that does a further depreciation of the lira. We think the risks are skewed towards a further dollarization of the Turkish economy and possibly a full-fledged balance of payment crisis. And then the introduction of capital controls or an involvement of the IMF. Um, so he was saying, you know, trim your exposure to Turkey. But let's take a step back. A balance of payments crisis uh, is something that can happen from time to time with countries, and it's deeply worrying. And this is why uh, Turkey has had so much focus on it this week. I thought it would be great for you to go through exactly what a balance of payment 
crisis is and how it unfolds and how why it can be such a big problem, particularly mm. if you're looking at a place like Turkey, which uh, is in a such a um, geopolitically, strategically important mm. location, um, but also one of those emerging markets that people are, have been looking to um, over the past couple of years as kind of one of these further sources of global growth and, and, mm. uh, and mm. optimism for the investment network. So balance of payments crisis, maybe you can go through it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, these things come up every so often. I guess uh, we in Australia are sort of most aware of the Asian crisis of the late 1990s, which was a classic uh, balance of pay- payments crisis and then led to contagion across Asian countries and then the emerging world more generally. Uh, basically, all countries have a uh, trade situation with the rest of the world. Some countries have trade deficits. They're normally the ones that run into balance of payments crises. Uh, trade deficit, basically, you're, you're spending more than you earn each year, so you're relying on foreign capital coming into the country to finance the exports that you're buying. And, of course, a lot of that foreign capital coming in is debt-related. In other words, it's borrowed from the rest of the world and it's often denominated in some foreign currency, most usually US dollars. And, of course, uh, the problem arises when investors sort of think, OK, well, we were happy to provide that money to that country, um, but often it's the case with these things. It's OK till it's not. So the money comes in over many years. It, uh, it's often financing economic growth. Sometimes you've got a go-for-growth go type approach. We had that in Asia back in the late 1990s. That was the crisis back then, started in Thailand. More recently, you've had that in, uh, in Turkey with a populist go-for-growth-at-any-cost um, approach by Erdogan, the, uh, the Prime Minister of, of Turkey. And, of course, that, that works for a while, but after a while you end up with a deficit with the rest of the world. Um, their budget deficit's blown out, their current account deficit, uh, the gap between what they're importing versus what they're exporting. And, of course, uh, that's led to a rise in foreign debt, in many cases US dollar-related debt. And, of course, uh, they've also had a blowout in inflation. Now, of course... It's always hard to work out what the trigger is, why foreigners suddenly start to panic. Um, But in Turkey's case, I think foreigners started to realise there is a problem here. I think the politics have turned a little bit perverse uh, with uh, most recently in the last week with that tension between the US and Turkey escalating on the imprisonment of a uh, US pastor in Turkey. And of course, Donald Trump uh, slapping tariffs or increased tariffs on imports from Turkey. And the rhetoric from Erdogan talking about an economic war. And, that's right. Yeah. That's right. You often have the, the leadership of countries that run into these problems blame the foreigners for the problem in the first place. Uh, in the first place. So that's that doesn't help. So I would say it's largely populist madcap economic policies that got them into the problem here. And then, of course, populist madcap policies are keeping them in there. So that little piece you read out, I, I, I kind of think feels kind of scary, but I do have some sympathy with that view yeah. that Erdogan is just making things worse here by saying he's not going to raise interest rates. He's not going to give in to America. He's he's not going to accept a, uh, an international bailout. Um, that, to me, suggests things could get worse before it gets better. Now, now what happens as this, as this unfolds is that foreigners start to think, well, gee, I've got some money down there. Maybe it's not such a good place to have my money. Um, they might default as their economy runs into trouble. They start to take the money out. And then it becomes self-fulfilling in a way because, the, in this case, the Turkish lira collapses down 40-odd percent for the year. 
uh, to its recent low, a bit of a bounce lately, but still down heavily. That makes it a lot harder for the for the Turkish borrowers to repay that money, which was in US dollars. Um, and so it, because it, it took, the, the, the 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 capital or the principal on the loans uh, is inflating by the value is, of the, relative to the, the depreciation of the currency, that's right. and you say forty percent. That's right, it's huge it, amounts. Yeah. It, whatever it was at the start of the year, it's now forty percent higher, both mm. the interest costs and the capital repayment cost. Um, and so it starts to feed on itself as the currency goes down. That causes other investors to worry about it, and then you've got a full blown balance of payments crisis. So it's basically a situation where foreigners start to question. Um, whether they want to keep putting money to that country, they start taking the money away. And then, of course, ultimately, it's usually the case that the country then has to turn to some sort of lender of last resort. It's usually the IMF at the moment, Erdogan, saying, we're not going to do that, uh, but I reckon at some point they'll probably have to. Well, I certainly remember Ireland a couple of weeks before um, the IMF and, uh, and the ECB came over and tapped them on the shoulder and said, hey, guys, sit down. You're going to sit down and listen to this. This is what we're going to do. Mm. Um, but uh, the, the Prime Minister at the time saying, we don't need the IMF, uh, we'll, be, we'll be fine. Yeah. Um, so one of the responses here, and I think one of the interesting parts of the dynamics, and you touched on some of this, is this um, the populist madcap sort of uh, political situation in, in Turkey where um, you know the independence of the central bank is appears to be compromised given that Erdogan put his son-in-law in charge of it. Um, and um, like one of the obvious responses to this would be uh, something like a 500 basis point massive increase in uh, which Argentina did recently mm, mm, mm. Uh, huge increase in interest rates to try and encourage people to keep their money in in uh, Turkish lira so they could get that 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 extra return um, on, on cash or whatever uh, or, or you know the deposits look like a, a good place to be um, but Erdogan, is against uh, interest rate uh, increases mm. because he thinks money should be cheap. Mm. Well, that's that's how madcap it is, um, you know. That, that, and that I think explains the difference between Turkey and some other countries. Argentina, as you say, has raised interest rates. I think to forty five percent. So that five hundred basis point increase was from about forty percent. So <laughs> horrendous interest rates in uh, Argentina. Yeah. Likewise, Indonesia has recently raised interest rates. So these other countries know the game. That if you've got yourself somewhat vulnerable, you've got to raise interest rates to stabilise things. Um, whereas Turkey doesn't uh, doesn't buy that. It sort of says, well, you know, those naughty foreigners, they're trying to destroy us and all that sort of stuff. They're not really. Um, they just want their money back. They they know, they just know that uh, if something's not done, then they might lose some of their money. That's what it's all about, really. At the end of the day, I think you'll have to relent. Otherwise, the Turkish economy is going to go into a severe tailspin and the way these things often go, there'll be some sort of popular uprising. He'll be turfed out. Um, the new government will have to go have cap in your hand to the IMF and uh, and do what the IMF says. I mean, you don't want this to happen. No. If you're any no. country, you'd want to try and avoid these things, which is why the, the whole of Asia learnt from the Asian crisis and why they all try and run these current account surpluses. Look at Thailand today, massive current account surplus. Look at China. You know, why do they try and run these, these current account surpluses so they don't run into balance of payments crises because they were so hard hit? by the Asian crisis 20-odd years ago. So they sort of learnt the lesson there. So if you want to avoid this sort of stuff, make sure you're not dependent on foreign foreign investors. So there's a really interesting wider picture here. So we'll talk about contagion, uh, and then I think important to go on to the reality of how the strength and the, the appreciation in the US dollar more generally, that is having an impact on all sorts of things around the world, uh, all sorts of assets, particularly when they're priced in 
in US dollars or on the other side of that priced in some other um, currency, right? And that is weakening against the US dollar. But let's start with the contagion thing. So uh, Spanish and French banks in particular uh, have been, um, I think I saw a number that about 5% of Spain's GDP mm -hmm. uh, is lent to uh, Turkey uh, mm -hmm. through a combination of um, sovereign and uh, corporate debt. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can talk about how that transfers uh, to, how that causes problems for potentially other parts of the economy. And then, because you're obviously into the Eurozone there mm -hmm. in a big way. Well, the linkage is, I guess, uh, relatively simple. If, if the Spanish banks, which have that exposure, I think it's only one or two of them from memory, if there's a default on that debt or delay in payments or um, they have to get a, get payment back in, in some depreciated currency as opposed to what they thought they were getting paid back in, um, if that creates losses for the banks, then it cuts into their capital and therefore it makes it harder for that bank to lend. So this is why you go back a week or so ago, Friday week ago, um, there was concerns. I think the FT ran a story on this about um, the ECB being yeah. a little bit wary about this and, and that sort of led to another um, round of the crisis uh, in Turkey. But that's the worry that the European banks that have the exposure um, see losses on their exposure to Turkey. That cuts into their, um, their capital and therefore makes it harder for them to lend. I guess the counter-argument is, well... For most European banks, the exposure is manageable, it's not huge, and there's a good chance that a big chunk of it would have been hedged anyway, so we don't need to be too worried about it. But that's, that's I guess, the, the, the broad thinking here. There's been two parts of this contagion. One is into Europe generally via the banks. The other one, of course, is to the uh, the rest of the emerging world. You know, well, if Turkey's in trouble, maybe Brazil will be in trouble and Argentina and all these other ones will be in trouble. Well, South so, Africa, the RAND. South Africa. Beaten up um, uh, at the start of this week, yeah. And then if they're in trouble, then maybe we'll go on to the rest of the emerging world. So you can sort of understand where the contagion comes from. But I guess at the end of the day, initially when these these headlines hit, investors sort of uh, want to shoot first and ask questions later. You know, immediate response is, well, let's sell our exposure to the emerging world, sell our exposure to Eurozone banks. That initial reaction can be a bit of an overreaction. I think that's what's happened here. Um, well, certainly but the lira has, uh, it's Friday as we're recording, and the lira has recovered a lot of the grand... Um that uh, I think it's up 10% for the week. It and, certainly yeah. has. So it's rebounded quite a bit, um, although it's still well down on where it once was. And that was partly because Qatar has said, or Qatar has said that they'll provide I think it was $15 billion or something to Turkey. Whether that's enough remains to be seen. Um, but that that's helped provide a bit of stability here. Um, but you alluded to something which is a bigger picture issue for the emerging world, and that is Still, much of the emerging world has US dollar denominated debt. As the US dollar's been going up in value over time, that always leads to concern about some sort of dollar funding crisis in the emerging world, that they see the the value of the amount of money that they borrowed in their own currency going up as the US dollar goes up. They've got to repay more. And, of course, that creates concerns about the emerging world. The last time we saw this, mind you, was about 2015 uh, 16, when the emerging markets had quite a bit of a tumble at that, uh, that point in time. And, again, it was on the back of a rising US dollar. And then it's also made worse because the trade war threat continues to linger. And of course, um, you know, worries about Chinese growth. So you've got four things there weighing on the emerging world generally. You know, worries about contagion from Turkey, worries about uh, rising US dollar affecting dollar, the dollar funding ability, 
worries about a trade war because they're perhaps more exposed than many other advanced countries to a trade war, and then worries about a slowdown in China. So all of these things are weighing on the emerging world. Now, in a big picture sense, you could say, well, the emerging world shares have fallen uh, 15% or whatever it is. Uh, valuation is good. The average PE, forward PE on emerging shares these days is about 10 and a half times or maybe 11 times. Uh, it's very, very low. In Australia, it's about 16 times. So there is value to be had there. But the question is that these sorts of things hanging over the emerging world suggest, well, you want to be a little bit cautious in the short term because this could get a little bit worse before it gets better. Uh, there was one in, one interesting aspect of this is the potential impact of a deep recession in Turkey. Um, I saw just a little note uh, from my colleague Jim Edwards, who's the um, UK, UK editor at Business Insider. And he was talking about um, a company um, where 9% of its revenue is from Turkey and its shares are down 10% this week. And Jim was making the point that, um, you know, these uh, sometimes the contagion can uh, come through in interesting channels. Right? Mm. Um, now, that company, I believe it or not, is Delivery Hero. All right. Uh, right. So, <laughs> 9% of its revenues in Turkey, okay. right? So, well, I have to say, I love Turkish food, so I can totally imagine myself, you know, uh, sending down the road for, um, uh, for, for, for a takeout in the evening. But, um, you, gotta, you know, Delivery Hero is not going to be alone in this, uh, in being a company where, you know, this is the world we live in now, um, all sorts of new and interesting companies where there's a lot of people uh, invested um, through advanced markets um, are um, have footprints in countries all over the world. Mm. Uh, and a downturn somewhere like uh, Turkey um, may have a pretty significant impact on those companies which are you know, listed and maybe in the United States or whatever. Um, so do you think that kind of thing, if you get a downturn in, t in Turkey, the impact that it can kind of spread onto the sort of broader corporate sector, like hurt demand, um, more bro hurt global demand, or at least regional demand in Europe, uh, to the point mm. where uh, it's, that becomes a channel for contagion, if you want to use that word? The answer is yes and no. I I'd be more concerned about that at an individual level, an individual company level, but I don't know that it's enough of a macro threat. I mean, Turkey is something like uh, less than 1.5% of world GDP, so it's relatively small in the great scheme of things. So presumably the, the rest, exposure of the rest of the world to Turkey is relatively small. Um, so I don't think it would be enough to cause, you know, trigger some sort of more significant e economic downturn in, say, Europe or the US or elsewhere. But yeah, there will be that exposure there. And at a individual level, when you're investing in shares around the world, you have to be aware of that sort of exposure, that you may not be investing in emerging world and you think well, you're safe, but then you find out oh, well, you've invested in a company that has exposure to a particular vulnerable country, in this case, Turkey, and therefore you just got to be aware of that. It just makes the job of investing a little bit more complicated when these sorts of landmines are going off. So let's talk about the US dollar. Um, big, probably, I, I would say, um, among the biggest stories of the year. As probably, you know, it, it connects to everything. It connects to the trade war, um, as you um, explained. That it's you know having this effect on uh, emerging markets. But maybe you can go back to what is driving this: this big, big appreciation in the value of the U.S. dollar against almost all of its trading partners. Um, 
the dollar index, I think, hitting something like 96 uh, and a half, um, I think, the last time I, I looked. Um, so what, what's driving all of that? Um, obviously, the Fed uh, playing a, a, a central role in this. It's mostly the Fed. It's the fact that U.S. growth this year has accelerated. The news coming out of the U.S. has been good and better than expected, whereas the news coming out of Europe, Japan, China, parts of the emerging world has been um, less good. In other words, you've seen this divergence in the global economy opening up, whereas last year was was uh, synchronisation. This this year is desynchronised growth. Uh, when you've got the whole the whole world doing well, um, often investors take their money out of the US and invest in the rest of the world. When you've got well money, the US doing well, they take their money away from the rest of the world and put it back in the US. Uh, so that's largely what explains. But in a technical sense, it is the Fed raising interest rates, steady drip feed of rate hikes, 0.25 percent every three months. Next one coming in September. And so that has led to a widening in the interest differential between the US and Japan, US and Europe, US and whoever, just about, including Australia, and that, that push, puts upwards pressure on the US dollar. Now, Donald Trump has tried to push back against that. A few weeks ago, he, he sort of almost complained about the Fed raising interest rates. But I think he's being a little bit, uh, maybe not naive, I think I'm sure he knows what he's doing, but... Um, he, uh, he he has to sort of think, well, if you're going to make America great again, which was his uh, campaign claim, um, and then that means stronger US growth, presumably compared to everybody else. And he's been doing that by deregulating, minor impact, but fiscal stimulus on a massive, massive scale. So the US economy was always, always already very strong. Suddenly you got this uh, 2% of GDP fiscal stimulus pumped in via tax cuts and spending increases, and that's made it all worse. That's accelerated the acceleration, if you like, in the US economy relative to the rest of the world and, again, attracted more money into the US and, and the, the US yeah, dollar. And the other issue is then from a financial markets perspective that uh, you, you need to get this reallocation of funds as the interest rate differentials uh, change. You get these, mm. um, you know, money comes out of uh, other parts of the world, as you mentioned, and gets tipped back into US dollars, um, So, which, again... Uh, feeds that um, the demand for US dollars and pushes the prices up. That's right. And it keeps going for a while. It can, feed, it can literally feed on itself as you worry more about the emerging world. You take money out of there, you put it back in the US dollar, the US dollar goes up and you get these blow-ups in the emerging world like Turkey. Guess what happened when Turkey happened uh, a week or so ago? The Turkish crisis you know, hit the headlines again. What happens? The US dollar goes up. Um, now, a bit of a complication there. Sometimes the yen can go up as well because it's seen as a bit of a safe haven in times of crisis. But predominant thing has been the rising US dollar. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. And I'm here with Shane Oliver, uh, Chief uh, Economist and Head of Investment Strategy at AMP Capital. Okay, uh, let's talk about a few other things going on in markets. Probably a lot of this all connected to um, metals. Uh, getting beaten up this week, uh, Dr. Copper, uh, you know, um, really fell out of bed in the in the middle of the week. Um, iron ore, uh, while prices have been very strong, um, have pulled back again uh, later this week. Um, so that's put uh, some pressure on uh, Australian mining companies. Um, and um, you know, there's and there's this obvious concern about you know where is global GDP heading. Um, what do you see when you when you think about that and when you're, uh, you're looking at where the metals prices are and um, what it's signalling to the market? Yeah, at this stage in the cycle, metal prices and commodities generally should be strong. If you believe we're later in the cycle, and certainly when you look at the U.S. economy, we are a bit later in there. Um, there are some inflationary pressures there. 
normally that's just sort of the point in the cycle where metals and commodities are strong. So what we're seeing is contrary to that, um, and I think it's largely because the markets and investors are focused on, well, there's a couple of things, rising US dollar. Um, most of these commodities are priced in US dollar. I think the only one that's not is, uh, is wool, and we don't hear much about that. It's priced in Australian dollars. But anyway, all the others priced in US dollars, they've been uh, going down as the US dollar goes up. Then on top of that, you've had this worries about a trade war, and if you worry about the emerging world, you think, oh, well, that means less demand for commodities. So all those things are weighed on commodities generally and push them push them down. Some of them, as you say, hitting bear markets. Dr. Copper is called Dr. Copper because it's often seen as a, as a guide to how the global economy is going. The other one called Dr. is Dr. Cosby, which is the uh, South Korean share market. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the fact that these things have been going down doesn't augur that well. It, it sort of suggests there is a bit of a, a downside risk to the global economy. Um, I kind of think that risk is probably a little bit overblown. I, I think we are still in an environment where global growth is still good, and I'm hopeful, hopeful that the emerging world crisis doesn't go too far, and that likewise trade war is ultimately averted. Well, what, um, one of the other things that has happened this week has been that um, that was. It, it seems that you know the twitchiness in markets. You know, it seems like anything can kind of set off a little bit of rumble. So there was another thing this week. Tencent, um, the giant uh, tech company mm-hmm. in China. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> but um, Tencent, uh, you know, its share price fell sort of five, five or six percent. And one of the big questions is the uh, rate of growth uh, of consumer demand uh, in China, which has been such a massive support, including for the Australian economy um, over the last decade or two. Um, but particularly in the last decade, as you've had this, you know, really strong consumer um, uh, uh, demand in China for all sorts of products um, uh, from all over the world. Uh, and the Tencent is kind of that indicator that maybe this is slowing down a bit. Um, what do you think about that? Because there is this concern. I remember a couple of years ago, everybody was sort of thinking that Chinese growth slowing from 7%. And there's all sorts of analysts out there talking about, well, we think it's going to fall pretty quickly to 4 um, Here we are t- a couple of years later, and it's still at 65 um, But uh, what's your take on, on where Chinese growth is? Uh, I think it's slowing down. So I, th- I think the most recent number was June quarter is about 6.8 or something. And this year, forecasts are around 65 So we think it's going to slow down a little bit. But the data we've got in the last week did show a slowing in investment and uh, retail sales and industrial production, which was expected to bounce higher, didn't. Um, and then you've seen signs that uh, credit growth in China is slowing as the authorities have cracked down on shadow banking. And on top of all of this, you've got the overlay of the trade war uncertainty. So it does seem as if Chinese growth is slowing. That's perhaps showing up in Tencent. That, uh, that, that Tencent fall actually added to the worries about tech, tech stocks on Wall Street because... Investors said, well, you know, we've seen what happened with Facebook, uh, Twitter, and now even in China where the Chinese tech company, maybe the heat is coming out of the tech sector generally. And, and of course, the tech sector has been a key part of the share market strength globally in recent years. And if it's starting to crack, well, what does that mean for the global rally in shares? So there are, there are concerns about that. I think um, back to the Chinese story, what I've seen in China is all consistent with what the authorities seem to be worried about over there, and that is growth slowing. So they seem to be rotating yet again from worrying about uh, focusing on deleveraging or slowing credit growth to now refocusing on trying to shore the economy up. And you've seen the State Council, you've seen the Politburo all coming through saying uh, 
this is a time for stimulus, you know, taking some of the monetary breaks away, not necessarily putting the foot on the accelerator, but helping the bigger banks lend, offsetting the slowdown in shadow banking. Uh, but more importantly, you've seen this increasing focus coming through on fiscal stimulus in China. Is this going to be another rerun like what they did in the GFC? No way. I don't think they're going to do anything like that, but I do think you'll probably see a bit more stimulus coming through in China to try and stabilise that growth, make sure it doesn't go much below 6.5%. It has been remarkable. They've been incredibly consistent uh, in terms of the economic levers, the policy levers that they pull uh, in order to manage uh, the rate of growth Mm. and and, um, what they've been, you know, in terms of, Controlling the currency, uh, for example, um, you know, keeping a good rein on the currency, um, although it has been weakening, uh, and this actually gives me a nice little segue into the um, into the Australian dollar because, as analysts keep pointing out to me, if you you know you're thinking about where the Australian dollar has fallen heavily uh, in the last few weeks, and I think um, you know back down between 72, 73 cents. Um, but if you look over the last uh, few months, it has tracked incredibly closely the um, uh, the level of duan uh, on markets, which is very tightly controlled. Uh, you know, there's limits mm. on how much it can move on a daily basis um, on currency markets. Um, uh, but it has been weakening. Uh, it's kind of above six point nine now, and there's talk that it may get back to sort of seven. Um, so, um, with that happening, how do you think that uh, all feeds into, you know, what you what where you reckon the Australian dollar is and what the impact is that might have on us back here at home? Well, we're fortunate in Australia in that the currency is. Uh when things are bad globally, it goes down. When things are good globally, it goes up. So it always provides a buffer for us. But I think uh, it's more down than up here. Um, we've been looking for the Aussie dollar to go to 70 cents for a while now. I was wrong last year, mind you. It just went to 80 cents rather than down. Um, but I do think it's going down to, to a lower level, 70 cents. Uh, big driver there is the interest rate differential. Aussie rates, 1.5% US rates uh, in a range, 1.75 to 2. So it's already, that gap's already gone negative. It's going to raise rates next month, so it's going to go more negative, and that's going to keep getting uh, more and more negative as we go next year. So it's more and more attractive to park your money in the US and not in Australia. And then on top of that, uh, we learn time and time again, whenever there's uncertainty about the global economy, whether it's trade, trade war, uh, whether it's uh, what China is doing on their currency, whether it's Turkey, the Aussie dollar goes down. And that's what we've seen lately. So I, I think given the uncertainties about the global economy, given the interest rate differential, which is getting more and more negative um, against Australia, uh, that we are going lower. I have been thinking, well, we should be supported in the high 60s, 68, 69, so we probably won't go much below 70 cents. Um, But if I'm wrong on the global economy, uh, then uh, commodities prices keep going down rather than find find a base around here then uh, you could see more downside as well because you'd have a, a double whammy for the Aussie deteriorating interest rate differential and lower commodity prices. Uh, yeah, which might help the, the RBA uh, eventually. Well, it would help the RBA. A lower currency does help the RBA. Obviously, it directly pushes up inflation to some degree, not like it used to, but obviously import prices go up a bit. Um, but it also provides a stimulus to the economy. It's a de facto monetary easing. The Reserve Bank, I think, would be secretly happy that it's come down. They've removed that reference to, well, if the Aussie dollar keeps down in terms of growth and inflation. So the Reserve Bank would probably be quite happy the fact that it's gone down. 
Uh, we got a little bit of uh, an extra signal this week uh, on the inflation front, uh, wage price index. Um, no news there, really. Um, the tiniest little uh, improvement in private sector wages growth, but in, uh, almost imperceptible. Um, so sort of business as usual on that front. I think it is. And uh, you might say, well, it's running at 2.1% now on an annual basis. Two years ago, it was 1.9%. So we've seen an improvement. We've had Soaring. a liftoff. Yeah. But, the, but <laughs> this is the problem. The rate of inflation is also 2.1% as measured by the CPI. So there's no real gain there. And the other problem is that the minimum wage increases were running around 2.5%. About a year or so ago, they jumped up to around 35 Do the maths on that, the number of people affected by that. It adds about 0.2% to wages growth. So the only reason we've gone from one9 to 2.1% is because the Fair Work Commission accelerated the pace of minimum wage increases. Um, so if you're not in the minimum wage, you're still, you're still seeing, on average, less than 2% wages growth. So that's still a concern, I think. Um, and I noticed the Reserve Bank Governor today remaining optimistic. This is his uh, statement, uh, sorry, his parliamentary testimony, uh, remaining optimistic that uh, wages growth will pick up. But I, I kind of think it's going to take longer than even they expect because you've still got very high levels of underemployment in the economy. Um, and I also worry that uh, people's expectations have sort of fallen. You know, a company used to set the wage budget for the year ahead as being three and a half percent or four or something. Now they start off with two, two. or two and a half. Yeah. Um, workers aren't expecting the wage rises that are demanded. You know, workers are also worried that they're going to get automated away or replaced by a robot or something. So the, these things, I think, are structurally weighing on inflation. And, and then we've also got this debate about, oh, well, maybe we should lower the inflation target. You know, we're not meeting that goal over there. We'll just change the goalposts. Uh, and I, I think that's problematic as well because if they change the, the goalpost to a lower rate of inflation, say, yeah, we've achieved our goals, that will make Australians even more sceptical that they're committed yeah. to the inflation target. So yeah. I'm not a great fan of that one either. Yeah. I saw an astonishing chart during the week uh, about um, that showed uh, the US unemployment rate uh, mapped against wages growth, and mm. they're sort of mirror images of each other. So as unemployment... Yeah goes up, the wages growth falls, and they were almost in perfect sync going back sort of two decades. Then you had the GFC uh, and the explosion in unemployment, and wages growth stayed steady, but as the uh, unemployment rate has fallen now to where it's extremely low now in, in, in the US. 3.9%. Yeah, and but you see the wages growth has stayed almost almost static. And so the, the, the apparent breakdown in the past decade of the relationship between those two things is something that's, I think, increasingly clear. It's not something that's confined to the United States. It's happening in advanced economies all, uh, all over the world. Partially, I think, from some of the uh, reasons that you talked about there, workers being a little bit more worried about the outlook for their jobs, etc. It's, so, it's not just an Australian phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. Um, and they've, they've had to get their unemployment rate down to 39 and get their underemployment rate, if you add up unemployment plus underemployment, to 7.6. In Australia, if you add up unemployment and, un and underemployment, you get 13.9. So they've had to get a really tight labour market to get any perceptible pickup in wages growth. But as you say, on a chart, it hardly looks like anything. You know, you've yeah. gone from, um, I think, what, we're now 2.7%. Um, so it's a little bit better than Australia, but not much. No. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, that was a lot of uh, material. There was a lot of reasons to be worried. Um, you sent out, an, and I think I, I referenced this earlier, you sent out an article a couple of weeks ago 
keys to successful investing. This is, you know, having perspective in uh, troubling times. Um, I've actually been reading something. Uh, uh, there's a book called Factfulness uh, by uh, Hans Rosling, and it's one of the books that Bill Gates uh, says that everybody should read to get perspective on where the world is. And, you know, um, I don't know why I ended up picking it up uh, recently. Maybe it was to feed my inner optimist. Um, but... Um, it's a book all about how uh, most of the world has been lifted out of poverty and uh, life expectancy in the last 20 years. Or sorry, you know, um, the um, people living in extreme poverty around the world has fallen from 29% to just 9% of the world's population in two decades. Uh, and, you know, life expectancy is increasing. And he has a great chart uh, in that book where, you know, you, you, you do surveys around the world where you ask people, is the world getting better or worse? Uh, and overwhelmingly, people, majorities of people uh, will tell you the world's getting worse. And pretty amazingly, the country that's on the top of the list where m the most people say it's like 70 something percent say that the world is getting worse is Turkey. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, but um, so I think, you know, more broadly, I would have thought up until a couple of years ago, I would have thought, yes, I think this is very natural. You know, um, globalization is improving the lives of people around the world. Um, you know, China's had this immense achievement of lifting um, hundreds of millions of people uh, out of poverty in, in my lifetime. Um, but more recently, you know, I think some of the things that have been happening are a little bit more, particularly the retreat from globalization, um, and this sort of nationalistic brand of politics that we're starting to see, not just obviously in the United States, little um, hints of it more recently in Australia, that crazy Fraser Anning, nobody uh, talking about, um, you know, his final solution on immigration and everything this week, like what a disgrace. Um, but uh, in times like that, right, they do get a little bit troubling. Now, your note um, has been all about, like, looking past some of that and having some mm. fundamental principles um, to what so I'll publish it um, on the site share it with people people can go and have a look mm. at it but maybe you can uh, talk about some of the, the key things in there yeah they, these things always try and I, I guess you get lost in the day-to-day -day. like this week we've been going from Turkey to Australian uh, confidence data to wages to employment uh, back to cent. Turkey 10 cents <laughs> to uh, you know, US tech stocks generally again um, back to the trade nego perhaps trade negotiator, you're going all over the place. I mean, you, most of that stuff is negative and you could be forgiven for thinking, well, the world's falling apart and it's all disastrous. But your reference to Bill Gates there reminds me that I, uh, I was going to write a note on that earlier this year. Actually, there was a, an issue of the Time magazine called The Case for Optimism or The Optimist or something. Bill Gates wrote in there with some of those points. I think uh, Warren Buffett did as well. And if you think about the way Warren Buffett has made his money, He's focused on the long term, and his long term can be a very, very long one. In the midst of the GFC, he was buying US shares, saying, well, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, but I do know we're still going to have a future there and we will ultimately recover. And he made a lot of money out of the GFC and out of other crises. So what he tries to do is sort of accept all this stuff is going on, but put it in longer term context. And the longer term context is you have to make the most of the magic of compound interest. That is how he has got rich by buying these things with good potential on a longer-term basis and sticking with it. And, of course, you, you know the maths. You've got $100 and you get 10%. End of that year, you're going to have 110 Next year, another 10%, you'll have 121 or something. It keeps building on itself and the line eventually goes exponential. But if you shove your money in bank deposits, 
Well, cash, you're not going to become a millionaire. You'll end up with a much lower balance. So to me, it's all about having that long-term focus, focusing on the magic of compound interest, being aware that there is cyclical ups and downs, trying to use the downturns. You'll never time it perfectly, but when things are down, that's a better time to buy than when they're up. Um, but trying to allow for there always going to be a cycle and not get blown off your strategy. And I guess in this environment, it's very important to try and turn down the noise. Now, of course, you and I start to think, well, maybe we're both contributing to this noise here, aren't we? <laughs> um, but the way I see that is if you're an investor out there, yes, you know you need to know what's going on, but you don't get you don't try and jump at everything you see. You get some sites, I even follow Business Insider, you get some sites that you think provide good balanced coverage through their stories, help inform you, um, and you focus on them, but you don't get blown around by all this sort of stuff. Um, whereas I reckon if you turn on the nightly news, you will get blown around by all this sort of stuff and you will conclude things are horrible um, when in reality we're living longer, we're living much healthier lives. You know, 80 years old today is the time when, Australians, many Australians are still travelling around the world. In the old days, that was when you were 60 because <laughs> yeah. you were too old by the time you were 80. Yeah. Um, you know, a typical household in Australia has two and a bit cars. Um, there's issues with debt and what have you. There are other issues out there, but the, the great scheme of things, we're a lot better off than we used to be, which I think was the Bill Goats point. But the trick here is to try and turn down the noise and try and put everything in context to make sure you don't get blown off your strategy of trying to make the most of compound interest. And that's exactly what... Bill Gates, uh, one of, uh, Warren Buffett was doing through the GFC. He heard everything that was going on that we heard, but he was out there buying in the midst of the crisis. Yeah. How was he doing that? He's listening to that stuff, but he's turning down the volume a little bit and saying, oh, you know, I hear all that stuff. It's all pretty rough, but now's a good time to be uh, taking advantage of things. Now, there's the balance between following things that are happening around the world and then, uh, if, say, from an investment point of view, thinking about when to act on that you have you always uh, share this that fantastic chart of uh, i think it's in that particular note you sent around it was the value of one dollar uh invested in 1900 um if you'd invested in in, uh, in australian shares um and how that would compare to say cash or um uh, you know and obviously shares um overwhelmingly outperforming uh you know cash or um i mean what have you got in here australian bonds cash managed to pull up the chart. Um, $1 invested in 1990, $559,281 um, for a return of 11.8% a year um, versus bonds at 59 uh, and uh, um, cash at 4.7%. Uh, so that chart starts in 1900 and then people come back to me and say, well, I don't have 118 years to go. <laughs> yeah. um, but you do, if you're a young person, you have 40 years in your career and even over 20-year periods, it's the same message that growth assets will grow your portfolio. Uh, whereas I think if Scott shoved... Morrison would like us all to have 50. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, that's the way it may be going. But uh, um, over any long period, and I, by long, I don't mean 10 years. 10 years is probably a bit too short. But you've got to take a longer-term focus here. And I think that's particularly important for new entrants to the workforce. Um, don't go, I mean, if in 1987, I've been in the workforce three years, share market suddenly falls 50% over a couple of months. So I, yeah. so I see a big chunk of my wealth, my superannuation collapse in value. Imagine if I had choice back then, I took it all out and said, well, this is how I was going to shove it in cash. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't have got to where I am today in terms of my superannuation. So thankfully, I've stayed, stayed the course through that. So I think it applies to both people who have time to go in the workforce. Obviously, if you're closer to retirement, you've got a low balance, it's a bit more difficult. But if you do have time on your side, 
and or you have a high balance, um, you're better off growing with growth assets. You might say I'm biased towards shares. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, my portfolio has shares and property in there, so um, it applies to Australian property as well, and that includes commercial and residential. Is now a time to pile into Sydney residential? Probably not. I'd wait a little bit longer, um, but uh, taking a long-term view, I, I reckon uh, residential property will deliver for you as well. But to, to make the most of this, you do have to turn down the noise and put things in context. One of the things we always talk about uh, when you're on the show um, is music. Um, uh, very sad. Uh, Aretha Franklin uh, uh, died overnight. Uh, it was Friday here. She died on Thursday night. Um, uh, I watched the Blues Brothers recently mm. uh, with my daughter for the first That's time. That's a classic. Film. <laughs> what a movie! Uh, when you go through the list of people who are in there, Ray Charles, um, you know James Brown, it's just incredible. And Aretha Franklin doing that great uh, song, "Think." And speaking uh, of uh, racism, there's a classic shot there where they're driving through in their police car. I think in Chicago and it's a traffic jam. One of the Blues Brothers, I think uh, Belushi, says to uh, a cop, you know, what's the, the roadblock? And he says, oh, the Illinois Nazis are sort of blocking. He says, I hate Illinois That's Nazis. Right. And then that creates another little story through the, uh, through the, um, the film as the Nazis chasing him <laughs> as, right. along with the police. <laughs> anyway. That's right. Um, but what are you listening to at the moment? Anything good? Well, this is a sad day for me. Not only has Aretha Franklin died, but 41 years ago today, um, at about 7.30 in the morning, I was told by my mother who'd heard the radio, on the radio that Elvis Presley had died. Oh, my goodness. So uh, that was 41 years ago today. He died August the 16th, 1977 in the US, and, of course, we learned about that on August the 17th. So I'm actually listening to uh, two um, uh, CDs. Actually, they're both, I've, I've downloaded both of them, but um, they're both Elvis uh, songs uh, reinterpreted by the... Um, Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Oh, fantastic. And uh, it's just amazing the way when you take... It's his voice and obviously some of the same uh, arrangements and so on, but just listen to Burning Love or If I Can Dream, which I thought was his most powerful uh, social commentary back in 1968, and this is just amazing stuff. But when you overlay that with the strings and the orchestra, it just sounds amazing. One of my favourite things about music when you get like just a really good song mm. reinterpreted and rewritten... Um, so, um, you know, like classical music, uh, is one, um, really good way of like, so there's a, a band that does, there's a, a, an outfit that does Metallica songs on strings. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Which is fantastic. But there's also, uh, that group Boyce Avenue, yeah. um, which takes like songs by Adele and Britney Spears and, but turns them into sort of easy, easy listening guitar, uh, you know. Uh, guitar bar uh, uh, songs. Um, I, I love all it, that It won't stuff. go down well. That you, I mean, I do like easy listening style, to be honest with you. I like yeah. strings there, which will probably blow my credibility further, like uh, our interview last time. Oh. Did, but I like pop. <laughs> I like Taylor Swift. I, yeah, I yeah. like pop, and yeah. um, I, I do get sometimes lost in easy listening. Yeah, Not right. too much, but occasionally I'll, I'll switch around the dial. I'll end up on 2CH listening to easy listening stuff. But <laughs> one of my favourites recently has been Andy Williams. I don't know if I told you about that one. Yeah. But he's... Most of the stuff he did was reinterpretation of other singers' songs at the time. And he actually came up with quite amazing versions of those songs. And I didn't know they existed. I thought his singing style was all very boring and not the sort of stuff I'd listening to. And then I stumbled across it one day when I was looking into Claudine Langer. Uh, I don't know her, but she was a uh, singer who happened to be his wife back in the 1960s. 
Um, so I, I, I think I, on Amazon, and I had an obsession with buying CDs back then. I bought every CD that Andy Williams put out between 1967 and 1975. Um, and he was putting about two a, two a year. That kept, that kept me going for a while. Goodness me. Um, so um, one thing that I have been listening to, um, if anybody gets a chance and they should look it up, there's a band called Brass Against, and they're a brass band that are doing Rage Against the Machine covers. Uh, and they have this singer called Sophia Eurista who just has this incredible voice, uh, and they're just doing magic stuff. So the, the videos are blowing up on YouTube, um, but their version of uh, the Rage Against the Machine song, Wake Up, is actually one of the coolest things I've seen all year. Um, uh, and it's definitely who's, worth who's a look. that again? They're called Brass Against. Brass Against. Oh, yeah. Check that out. Yeah, um, it's worth a look. Okay, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Guest this week has been Shane Oliver from AMP Capital. Shane, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. We're on Twitter individually too, Shane Oliver from AMP and myself, Paul Colgan. The show is produced by Darren Lake. You can find us on iTunes uh, under Devils and Details or on your preferred podcasting platform of choice. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.